Hello, and welcome to Unaligned. My name is Megan, and today I am going to be reviewing the Call of Cthulhu 7th edition scenario, The Darkness Beneath the Hill, written by Christopher Smith Adair and published by Chaosium in 2016 as part of the Doors to Darkness collection. First, I'll start with a spoiler-free review for players before doing a full breakdown for keepers, as well as tips for running the scenario yourself. Lastly, I'm going to be speaking with a friend of mine named Rachel, who is a player in my group, to discuss her first experience playing Call of Cthulhu. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow me on Twitter at MissMeganJ or on Instagram at MissMeganJ. There will be links in the show notes. The Darkness Beneath the Hill is a Call of Cthulhu scenario set in the classic era, meaning the 1920s and set in Providence, Rhode Island. As you're probably aware, H.P. Lovecraft was a native of Providence and lived there most of his life. He's even buried there with the words, I am Providence, inscribed on his tombstone. Providence in the 1920s setting feels both colonial and modern, making it an ideal real-world setting for Call of Cthulhu scenarios, even if it lacks some of the fictional flourishes of Arkham in Smith or Dunwich. The setup for the scenario is straightforward. One of the investigators receives a call from an old friend named Joshua Winscott, who has inherited a large but run-down house in Providence from his recently deceased aunt. Josh tells the investigator that he's discovered a bricked-up tunnel entrance in the basement. He recruits the investigators to research the history of his family, which is mired in old rumors of slave trading, and eventually to explore the tunnel itself. Players, you may be eager to tear down the wall and plunge into the tunnel, but you'll want to do some investigation first. After all, this is an investigative horror game, and you are investigators. Researching the Winscott house and the Winscott family, as well as Providence itself, will create a sense of atmosphere and place the scenario in its proper context. The Darkness Beneath the Hill is the first scenario in a book designed for new players, so if you're new to the game or you're playing with your new characters, I recommend you take your time researching and exploring Providence so your investigators can interact, roleplay, and get to know one another. There's no ticking clock here, so you can take your time. But while you're out, you may want to visit a hardware store and stock up on supplies as well before you go underground, such as sturdy clothes, flashlights, rope, shovels, pickaxes, guns, dynamite. You never know what you'll find below. Overall, The Darkness Beneath the Hill is a simple, compact scenario that will be easy for new players. It provides a nice sampler of what Call of Cthulhu is all about. Investigation, mystery, family secrets, and explorations into the unknown. If you're new to the game or if you're used to more hack-and-slash games, the idea of going to a library may seem counterintuitive to you, but it will help you to practice your research skills, and the outcome of the scenario doesn't depend on your ability to read old Greek texts, and the scenario won't punish you if you miss a lot of clues. The bulk of the scenario is similar to a dungeon crawl as you explore tunnels and caves, so it should feel familiar to D&D and Pathfinder veterans. The downside to this scenario is that if you're hoping to encounter tentacled horrors and bizarre alien monstrosities in the tunnels, you'll be disappointed. The challenges you'll face beneath the Winscott house aren't mundane exactly, but they aren't the mind-bending, sanity-shredding abominations you may be hoping for. Of course, that doesn't mean you're safe. Another element to the darkness beneath the hill that players may dislike are the themes of slavery and slave trading in the background lore. Players who are interested in trying this scenario but prefer the fictional horrors of Lovecraft to the real-world horrors of slavery should ask their keeper to avoid the topic where possible. I'll go into more detail on how this can be accomplished during the scenario breakdown. Beyond this point, there will be serious spoilers, so any prospective players listening may want to stop now and forward a link to this episode to their game master. Now let's dive a little deeper, literally and metaphorically, into the scenario. During their research, the investigators may learn a bit more about the history of the slave trade in Rhode Island and learn that Josh Winscott's ancestor, Elijah Winscott, traded slaves after it became illegal in Rhode Island. They may also discover a letter written in 1811 by a man named Jacob Bishop, detailing an incident 15 years previously in which Elijah Winscott sent a group of slaves and overseers to explore the caves beneath his home. 
When they didn't return, Elijah went to investigate and discovered that all of them had been savagely killed or simply vanished. After this, Elijah sealed up the tunnel and never went in again. The scenario contains a handout of the letters written by Jacob Bishop, recounting the event as told to him by Elijah Winscott. When the investigators return to the Winscott house, they find that Josh has managed to open the tunnel by himself and has gone in alone. Following their friend, the investigators will discover a tunnel leading from the house to the Providence River, which was once used for smuggling humans. There is a smaller hidden offshoot to this main tunnel, however, which leads deeper into an unexplored system of caves. The cave system is a little world unto itself, overseen by a serpent man named Strahuris. He's the descendant of an ancient reptilian race which ruled the world during the time of the dinosaurs. The caves are inhabited by humanoid creatures called degenerates, which are actually the descendants of the slaves and the overseers captured a century earlier, which have devolved into filthy mute ape men. They are responsible for maintaining the serpent man's mushroom plantation. There are two ghasts in the caves as well, who enforce the serpent man's will. If the investigators explore the cave system thoroughly without getting killed in the process, they will discover a maze-like warrens where the degenerates live, a temple to the serpent god Yig, which can induce hallucinations, an enormous pipe organ decorated with human heads, and a chamber where the other serpent people hibernate in cocoons suspended from the ceiling, as well as Jirahris' laboratory. In the laboratory, there is a jail cell where Josh Winscott is being kept alive, but now quite insane. The best possible outcome is that the investigators kill Jirahris, destroy the sleeping serpent people, and rescue Josh before teleporting back via a magical portal. As I mentioned in the player review, the strength of the scenario is in its simplicity and how it manages to teach the fundamentals of Call of Cthulhu to new players or inexperienced players. There's a little something for everyone, and it's easily survivable assuming players don't attack everything they see, which of course is a big assumption if you're dealing with players who are used to D&D. For keepers, it's an easy-to-run scenario since there's really only one speaking NPC role and the cave system is well laid out in the book. You can probably run this scenario with only two hours of prep. My favorite part in the scenario was the temple to the serpent god Yig. The statue of Yig appears like a monstrous snake until the players realize it's only a statue. Even then, the statue has the power to induce hallucinations. The second time I ran Darkness Beneath the Hill, one of the investigators failed a power check and experienced hallucinations of thousands upon thousands of snakes pouring out of the statue's mouth. After a failed sanity check, that player developed an indefinite phobia of snakes, which also played into the final confrontation with Shirai The scariest moment in the scenario is the discovery of the severed heads affixed to the ends of the organ pipes. The scenario suggests that when the keys are pressed, the sound from the pipes is emitted from the mouths of the severed heads, producing a moaning or wailing sound. Unfortunately, none of my players ever attempted to play the instrument. The introduction of the ghasts can also be a terrifying moment, especially if you delay it as long as possible. For most of the scenario, the investigators won't see anything more monstrous than a degenerate, so the sudden appearance of a slimy, gray, bug-eyed, humpback creature with sharp teeth and long-pointed claws will really startle them. The drawback to this scenario are the lack of elements which people traditionally consider Lovecraftian. Yes, serpentmen, ghasts, and degenerate humanoids all exist in Lovecraft's fiction, but the scenario lacks those mythos elements that players might expect if they haven't read the deep cuts. Then there's the issue of slavery. Slavery of any kind is becoming more and more taboo in role-playing games in general, and some players may wish to avoid the topic altogether, even if it's historically accurate in a real-world setting. I'm one of those players who would rather just avoid it altogether in my games if possible. Another problematic element is the so-called degenerates living in the caves. The scenario presents them as the descendants of slaves and overseers lost in the caverns in the late 1700s who have become mutated through inbreeding. But I don't buy this. I think 120 years is not enough time for fully developed homo sapiens to devolve so far. And while I don't think that the author was deliberately racist when he wrote this section, the notion of white and black people being forced to mate and spawning mutant apes is highly problematic, even if unintentional. Fortunately, these issues can be excised fairly easily. 
First, I presented old Elijah Winscott as a smuggler trading in illegal goods rather than trading in human beings. The handout I mentioned detailing the murder of Winscott's slaves had to be removed from my game because it simply contained too many references to Winscott as a slave trader, but the letter was really too long for a handout anyway. Better just to summarize. In the revised narrative, Winscott sent hired workers to investigate the tunnel system, but they were massacred, presumably by the ghasts, after which he sealed up the tunnel. I portrayed the degenerates as albinos with white eyes, as if they had evolved over thousands of years to live in subterranean conditions. Their original origins don't matter. Either the ancestors wandered into caves accidentally, or they were captured by Stirachris hundreds or even thousands of years ago. They also weren't inherently evil. The first time I ran this scenario, one of my players befriended one by giving them her nice coat. From that point on, this degenerate acted as the group's guide. The scenario can be played in a single session of about four hours, but if you're playing the scenario to start a new campaign or a series of scenarios, I suggest taking it slow at the beginning to allow players to develop their investigators and roleplay with one another. You can also take the time to foreshadow what's lurking beneath the hill. In my second run, I included a museum exhibit featuring a mysterious artifact found in the Providence River that seemed to predate human habitation in North America. I knew that I wanted to play this scenario across two sessions, so I created kind of a bridge between the investigation section and the dungeon crawl section. I presented the players with a series of natural tunnels of varying dimensions, including some tunnels so tight that could only be traversed by wiggling on their bellies. Investigators occasionally became stuck and had to be freed by their companions. Some tunnels led to dead ends. It served to ratchet up the tension, especially when I began to hint that the investigators were not alone in the tunnel. At one point, an investigator became stuck in a narrow tunnel and began to feel hands pulling at her ankles. Occasionally, the investigator saw a fleeting glimpse of something down a tunnel or heard footsteps or voices that almost sounded like human speech, hinting at the presence of the degenerates. For inspiration, I used the Nutty Putty Cave system in Utah, where spelunker John Jones became trapped and tragically perished in 2009. I'll include a link to a YouTube video, but I warn you, it's not for the claustrophobic, and it is a heartbreaking story. Of course, the trick to executing this sequence is motivating investigators to continue moving forward after any reasonable person would have turned back. First, I used discarded cigarette butts and occasional noises to lure them deeper, thinking they were on Josh's trail. When at last they decided to give up and return to the surface, they found their way blocked by a boulder rolled into place by degenerates. With nowhere else to go, they had to go deeper, eventually finding their way to the Serpent Man's Caves. My last tip for running this scenario is to recommend keepers find a way to really emphasize the arcane sigils scrawled on one particular wall in Sirahurst's laboratory is actually a magical portal. There's nothing particularly magical up until this point, and it might be reasonable for investigators to assume they're stuck. The first time I ran this scenario, the investigators brought a primitive EMF reader, which responded to the energy given off by the portal. The second time I ran it, stray bullets intended for Sirahurst struck the wall and simply vanished without doing any damage. Once the servant man was dead, one of the investigators touched the wall and vanished. The others followed and found themselves back in the main tunnel by the Providence River with Josh in tow. YouTuber Seth Skorkowski reviewed the scenario on his channel and suggested that keepers include an epilogue in which the investigators must choose whether to report what happened to the authorities and the potential aftermath. I actually disagree. Once the investigators have rescued Josh and escaped the servant caves, the story is over. Don't deflate the tension you've achieved with an unnecessary epilogue. And on a high note, if you really want to explore the consequences of this scenario or tie it to another scenario, save that for the beginning of the next session. And now, as promised, I have a guest joining me on the podcast today. This is Rachel. She is a friend of mine who's been playing with me in my 
Ravenloft games and in my Call of Cthulhu, well, now my Call of Cthulhu games for a few months now. So I wanted to bring her on the show and talk about sort of her experiences as a horror fan. Uh, we'll talk about some of our, our favorite our favorite horror movies or books together. And then we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the experience of playing this adventure, The Darkness Beneath the Hill, and how it feels sort of from a from a player perspective. And I'm hoping that any potential game masters listening to this episode might get a sense of what players like about this adventure, what they don't like about this adventure, what they'd like more of. And hopefully that will be useful to you running the adventure for yourself. The scenario for itself, excuse me, I'm so used to saying adventure from Dungeons and Dragons, the scenario. So welcome to the podcast, Rachel. It's very nice to have you here. Hello, I'm happy to be here. Hi, and anybody who follows me uh, more broadly than this show might recognize that Rachel plays Alisane, the Qualinesti wizard in the Champions of Kryn actual play that I'm running for the Dragonlance Canticle. Ah, uh, yes, my uppity little wizard. Mm-hmm. So if anybody's interested in listening to that particular actual play, you can go to dragonlancenexus.com slash podcast, or you can just look at the links in the show notes. It should be pretty easy to find. But thank you for joining me, Rachel. I am excited to have you here. Yeah, I'm excited too. I can't wait to talk about the nitty gritty of uh, your horror fascination along with mine. Yes, I think fascination is an appropriate word to use. I've actually been into horror much longer than I've been into fantasy. I was kind of a latecomer. Well, not a latecomer. It was my my teens when I got into fantasy. But it wasn't really till my till my college years that I really got like deep into fantasy, like the Lord of the Rings and all like the quote unquote grown up kind of fantasy novels. But as a kid, it was mostly like goosebumps. That was kind of the big thing that I was into when I was a kid. You know, I I had a similar I have a similar story. I was never as a child into you know goosebumps any anything related to horror I was uh, very adverse to it um even into my teen years and uh, like up until I was like 18 I had never seen a horror movie in the theater all my friends you know loved loved it loved it but I just wouldn't do it um and it wasn't until I was like mid 20s ish early 20s mid 20s that I really really got into it in your personal horror career what was sort of an early movie that really that really got to you because there must have been something that affected you enough that it made you want to pursue this genre. Honestly, I think it was Silence of the Lambs. Nice, good choice. Yeah. Um. So, so my mom was really into the you know the actual book series. Um. Or had read most of you know the the first book and then Red Dragon and the like. And of course, at that point in my life, I wasn't you know really into that kind of thing. But then as I got a little bit older. And I was like, oh, this this doesn't seem too scary. You know, it's really narrative. Uh, it's got Anthony Hopkins in it. Oh, wait, wait a second. What's going on? You didn't. So you didn't think Silence of the Lambs was going to be scary until you actually saw it? No, no, I didn't. I had no idea. I just, it, you know, my mom was like, oh, yeah, I read the book. You should watch the movie. And I was like, okay, sure. I remember reading Silence of the Lambs or watching Silence of the Lambs and reading it fairly young because I was into like books like Mindhunter and like the stories about like FBI agents like so I'm a bit older than you are I'm sad to admit but when I was in my teens I was really into shows like the X-Files like the FBI and these criminal profiling investigations and I started reading books like Mindhunter by John Douglas which is about the FBI's behavioral science unit and how they track down serial killers and that got me into reading Silence of the Lambs which is sort of based on that that particular department in the FBI. So I must have seen Silence of the Lambs 
pretty early on and then read the book. It would have been before even Hannibal, the novel, was released. So it was it was definitely impactful on me. And I actually saw I saw Silence of the Lambs again recently in the theater. They did like 25th anniversary re-release or 30th anniversary re-release or something like that. And it's so weird watching a procedural crime movie that nobody has a cell phone. Nobody mentions DNA at any point in the entire movie. It's all just like mind games with Hannibal Lecter and it's all just investigation, basically. And Hannibal Lecter is such a... He's so different in Silence of the Lambs than he would come to be portrayed in the later movies and in the TV show, which I also love. He's so, like, slimy in the original movie. Like, he's saying these things to Clarice to really, really upset her. Yeah, yeah. He, but what what Anthony Hopkins' um, Hannibal lacked in, like, some of the elegance that I was expecting, you know, from the books, um, he made up for it in everything else. I think that the original Silence of the Lambs just captured something about Hannibal Lecter in a way that the other movies never quite could. The way that he really manipulates Clarice. Because he's sort of this, like, anti-hero in the later movies. He's still killing people, but you're rooting for him. And you're not really supposed to root for him in Silence of the Lambs. And if you do, it's only because Anthony Hopkins is so compelling. Yeah, he's just so slimy in the in that first movie and i think that's something that kind of got overshadowed by how much people love that performance and how much people love that character but he had this uh, like the, the dynamic of that character it was like this this weird complicated uncomfortable mix of slimy and charming that's sort of what i'm getting at i think i think that uncomfortable is sort of how you're supposed to feel. It's how Clarice is supposed to feel, and it's how you're supposed to feel through Clarice's eyes when she's talking to him. He's sort of pushing all the buttons. Maybe he's not, in his heart, such a slimy person who says all these creepy things to women, but he just wants to get that rise out of Clarice, and he wants to manipulate her, and he's willing to say the nastiest things that he can to just get a rise out of her, to get into her head, and that's what makes him so scary. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me, what is your favorite horror movie, if you have a favorite, or your favorite so, currently? So I did some homework, aka I made a little list. Do you want to give me your, your top, like your top five? Yes. Um, so currently, my top five would probably be, I would probably start with uh, the original Alien. Mm -hmm. um, this is a no, no, no order, by the way. Uh, so the original Alien, uh, the the Witch by Robert Eggers, I think uh, Hereditary, mm -hmm. uh, and then oh gosh, um, I don't even know if I would technically consider this movie a a true horror movie, but I have to say the Lost Boys. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, and um, Seven, David Fincher Seven. Oh, very good choice. That came around. That must have been a few years after Silence of the Lambs, but I'm sure that. Seven was at least partially influenced by Silence of the Lambs. Oh, yeah, definitely. But that's a I, fantastic list. I agree with you. I agree with every every movie on that list. But let's hone in on one movie in particular from your list. I want to talk about The Witch. Okay. So what about The Witch do you like? What drew you in? What made that, what made that a top five worthy film? So before I went into 
seeing the witch for the first time i had just started getting like really getting into psychological horror um it is my favorite you know subgenre of horror um it's something that just really gets into your head um and so i wasn't really thinking much of it i i hadn't seen any you know any trailers or previews or anything like that um my partner is actually the one that was like oh we should really watch this so i did and i kind of just it's like i went into like a fever dream state <laughs> For that entire movie, just in awe of what I was watching. It's um, unbelievably yeah. intense and it really draws you in to this this world. Even though this it's only this one family, it it almost feels like you, you experience sort of this whole world, like the paranoia of those times and the feeling of isolation and the feeling of like you're completely on your own and you don't know what's real and just at the edge of your land, there's the woods, and the woods is, you know, it might as well be the moon. Nobody, at least from their perspective, nobody knows what's beyond the trees, and they really capture that in the movie. Yeah, and I I went into it not really being much of a fan of, like, period pieces, quote-unquote, but knowing that it was a horror movie kind of, you know, intrigued me, and it just, the just the dialogue alone and the accents and how how how, how much close attention to detail... Um, and that, that movie just, I don't know. I don't know. I love it so much. I'm talking about it like it's the gospel, but it just makes me really happy. It might be the gospel. Um, I think that the, I won't do the spoilers in case anybody listening hasn't seen it, but I think the end of that movie, as strange as it sounds, one of the most of uplifting, well, that's an interesting choice of words. One of the most uplifting religious experiences that you'll ever see in a movie. As dark as it's supposed to be, it also, to me, feels really like liberating joyful just joyful. absolutely joyful there's just mm -hmm. euphoria and you don't it's another thing though because you, you i didn't expect to feel that way when the movie ended not at all yeah it's so dark and so grim for most of the movie and then when you get to the end it's like you know this is actually a happy ending as strange as that seems yeah yeah they're, they're at least from my point of view maybe i'm just a weirdo who likes that kind of thing but i think that's what the filmmakers were going for no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, the the actors that they chose, too, were just, everyone was perfect in their roles. And I again, I won't go too much into spoilers, but there are these two little twins in the family that are both the cutest and the most annoying things ever. And they're perfect, and they got the perfect little children actors to play them. They might be the two biggest assholes in cinema history. <laughs> yeah. You just, you never wanted to punch a little child as much as you do these two. Oh my God, I know. But that also kind of speaks to the paranoia and it's, and it's reminiscent of the actual Salem Witch Trials because you have these, well, it's reminiscent of the original Salem Witch Trials and it's also reminiscent of kind of the satanic panic in the 80s where children are telling these bizarre stories and for some reason the adults are going along with it. And so the children realize that they're getting this attention from the adults and so they just keep elaborating and their stories get weirder and weirder and the parents are just, you know, kind of feeding them lines that the kids reiterate back to them and then the parents take it as confirmation and it's kind of an insane mental process but it happened it happened in the 16 the 1620s or whatever the 1680s it happened in the 18 sorry the 1980s and it's still i mean it's going to keep on happening for whatever reason people are drawn into whatever can reinforce a person's already existing beliefs and already existing stereotypes if you toss in that sort of element of danger to children it just cranks it all the way up and they'll believe anything if it reinforces what they already want to believe. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's it's almost well, the message is timeless, like you said. Um, just the the amount of 
lying to themselves that these these people had to do on a regular basis in order to 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 believe these things and and if you haven't watched it go watch it you really need to don't feel bad if you need to put on the subtitles even though they're technically speaking in english i had to watch it with subtitles on i did too i was right there with you their accents are so thick i think they're i think they're scottish accents but they're so thick that for the the parents especially it's not so because uh Anna Taylor Joy plays the daughter and, and she's she's amazing. She's amazing in everything and I love her. But the parents' accents are so thick, you have to listen with subtitles unless you've got a really keen ear. Or unless you're Scottish, I guess. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it doesn't sound like a thick accent if you're an actual Scottish person. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got we've got the witch set in colonial New England. Let's fast forward a couple centuries and talk about New England in the 1920s, specifically New England in the 1920s, as it is a the primary setting for the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, which is which is sort of the heart of the reason we're talking today. So you and I have been playing together for a few months now, and we recently did our first Call of Cthulhu scenario together a few weeks ago. And the scenario that we did is called the Darkness Under the Hill, which is from the Doors to Darkness anthology. And I had run this adventure previously. I ran it for another group a few months ago. But this was my first time running it for this particular group. And this was your first time playing Call of Cthulhu in general, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had been interested in playing it for a while, but it, it always kind of felt intimidating. That's interesting. Why would you think it was intimidating? I don't know. I think I had um, spent a lot of time, like, like I'm, I'm late in the game of, uh, of, uh, you know, role-playing games, um, D and D and the like, I just really got into it. Not just, a, just a few years ago. So, you know, there's, that's a lot of just the TTRPG community in general and, and all of that. That's a lot of information to wade through trying to figure out, you know, what's what. And so I spent, you know, most of my focus on D and D, but I always had that you know, with the Call of Cthulhu in the background kind of creeping because I'm really into cosmic horror. Before you played, had you heard people talk about how deadly it's supposed to be or how easy it is to die or go insane in Call of Cthulhu? I feel like that's something, that's a reputation that Call of Cthulhu has. And I think maybe it's something that both draws in certain players and scares off certain players. Yeah, yeah. I knew about that, uh, that reputation of it being a player killer, essentially. Uh, but that kind of fascinated me even more, but it made me wait, you know, it made me, it made me push it, push it back a little bit. I was like, you know, I'm just going to, you know, I'll play it sometime in the future, you know, when I'm a little more prepared for that sort of thing. Yeah. And it, be it became this kind of goal, this, this little minor goal in the future. I'm going to play a Call of Cthulhu game someday, just when I'm ready. I feel like it's a difficult transition for players who are especially familiar with D&D &D to make because for several reasons. One, D&D &D is so combat-oriented, and there's a lot more kind of social interaction and role-play and investigation in Call of Cthulhu, and that's by design. And also the fact that your characters are so, so squishy in Call of Cthulhu. I noticed when you were creating your characters, not just you, but the other, the other people in our group as well, were so reluctant to, like, give up a single hit point when you're developing your characters. Like redoing all the stats so that the character would have 11 hit points instead of 10 hit points. 
But that's what Call of Cthulhu is. I mean, it's it's supposed to be deadly because it's supposed to be scary. In Dungeons and Dragons, the chances of your character permanently dying forever are pretty slim. Especially when you get to like higher levels and you've got access to all these resurrection spells. You know, you've got your death saves and then you've got healing potions and you can just take a long rest and all your all your hit points come back. None of that is in Call of Cthulhu. If you die, you die. There's no coming back. Or if you go permanently insane, there's no coming back. And that's that's especially, I think, difficult for players who are so character-oriented, who really want to develop, to create and develop a character. The idea that this character can be so easily taken away from them. I think maybe that's something that scares people off as well. Yeah, yeah. From a from a D and D perspective, um, coming from that, um, you know, you you spend so much time building your character and putting you know blood, sweat, and tears into this setup and the backstory, and at, at least if you're like me, and you um you you know you invest so much time and energy into them, and then you're expecting you know a longer form campaign. Typically, you know, you're expecting your character to live for a little while so you can actually explore them. And then we jump into Call of Cthulhu and it's like, well, don't get too attached. And I really actually liked hearing that. <laughs> well, one of the reasons I like to do horror games is that I enjoy that sort of feeling of not scaring my players exactly, but kind of keeping them on their toes to be like, well, you know, you can make your character. And if if you don't like how the skills turn out, don't worry about it because they're probably going to die anyway. <laughs> yeah. I love to plant that little seed in my players' heads just to let them know that, you know, they could die at any time and I'm not going to be merciful, so to speak. I feel like that kind of setup too, um, going into the game with that mentality and knowing that you could pretty much lose your character at any time if you make, you know, the wrong move or, or something bad happens to you. Um, going in with that mentality allowed for a lot more, at least for me, a lot more freedom with the character I chose. Like, I didn't feel like I needed to be extra super careful with where I put my points um, because I needed to make sure that I perfectly complimented this other person. And, I, we, you know, we made a, a really even keeled and level party. I was like, nah, I want to play a weird theater lady who is really uppity and maybe knows how to use a shotgun. So how did you feel about the way the game worked as compared to D&D, like the actual experience of playing it? I was, you know, I was craving uh, a more narrative focused experience. Um, I have a, like an amateur theater, theater kid history um, and I'm really into just, just, you know, acting and, and I'm a fairly dramatic person I've, I've found over the years. Um, so I'm also a writer and so I'm just, a, you know, a creative person. So the idea of being able to, you know, play a game um, that allows for that, not just allows for it, but encourages it, um, even when it comes to, uh, like, sacrificing combat, for instance, for that. Like, I'm all for that. I get enough combat in d and I'm playing this game so I can pretend to be somebody else for a while. Call of Cthulhu kind of encourages you to avoid combat and run away from combat and away Dungeons and Dragons absolutely does not. And I think that's something that is difficult for new players to kind of get their heads around, especially if they're coming from Dungeons and Dragons. But like you said, it's also one of the strengths of the game because it allows for, you know, more character development. And if your character is a normal human rather than kind of the superhero that you play in D&D, it really lets you to inhabit this character 
to a certain degree and really just enjoy, like you said, the performance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned, you just mentioned it, it, it triggered a memory for me. You mentioned um, you, not, having to run away from monsters as opposed to, you know, engaging in combat. It reminded me a little bit of uh, my favorite types of horror video games and uh, even horror movies. Uh, I don't like it when, you know, there's a very scary creature or um, a very scary enemy and the protagonists are able to just take care of it with uh, a knife or a gun. I want them to run. That is the, uh, for instance, like Silent Hill 2. I don't know if you play that or not. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's all kind of circular for me. I love, I love just not only observing somebody else um, having to deal with like a, the most abhorrent situation of their lives and seeing if they can either rise to the occasion or, or fail, um, but also being able to embody someone like that for a little while, like through this game. I was actually playing Resident Evil 2 before we started recording the remake of Resident Evil 2. I was doing the second playthrough as Leon. <gasps> so I know it, exactly what you're talking about because they got that Mr. X wandering around. He's currently chasing me. I had to stop at a save point when we when I had to break to come record with you. But yeah, that's what I was doing right up until then. Having this unkillable giant chasing chasing after me and you can't fight back. And that's the experience that Resident Evil gives you and it's the experience that Call of Cthulhu gives you. Um, and in our adventure, you guys, you encountered relatively simple sort of earthbound enemies. But in some of the later adventures, I mean, you're going up against gigantic aliens that are essentially unkillable. And that experience is completely different from an experience like Dungeons and Dragons, where you're really encouraged to fight. You're encouraged not to run away. There's not even really mechanics for running away in D&D. That's something I've discovered as running running horror games, like you know, running a Ravenloft campaign or several Ravenloft campaigns. Running away, there's not really a way to do it in D&D, strange as that sounds. And trying to do it, like in combat, is very lame. It just feels very, very lame. <laughs> yeah, and there's actual, we didn't get into it in our adventure, but there's chase mechanics in the Call of Cthulhu rule set. There's rules oh. for chases on foot and there's rules for chases by car. And if you put a certain distance between yourself and the enemy, or you put enough obstacles between yourself and the enemy, you escape. And D&D doesn't have anything like that. So you're kind of obligated to keep fighting. That's good to know. Let me just uh, take a little note here. And I like combat in D&D. Don't get me wrong. I think it's fun. But it is a limitation of the system that you, your characters are so strong and you're so encouraged not to run away that balancing horror and fantasy is more difficult in D&D. And if you want a more pure horror experience, Call of Cthulhu is really the way to go. Yeah, and I'll be I'll be perfectly honest. Um my experience with with Lovecraft and, you know, the mythos is is not it's pretty limited actually. Like prior to playing the game, I um, you know, played and or watched a lot of some of the more recent and some of the older video games based on Lovecraft. Um mm -hmm like, you know, Innsmouth and, and all that. And I found it really interesting. And then, I don't know, like uh, anything related to cosmic horrors just has a real draw for me. I think the idea of sort of staring into the abyss, it stares back and you cannot look away is is just, it, it's just this, it's this kind of overwhelming horror that, uh, and also very relatable. Everyone understands that sort of horror. So anyway, I want to talk about this particular scenario that we did, The Darkness Under the Hill. Let's start sort of like with your experience 
did you, what did you like about it? What did you not like about it? What would you sort of recommend that other players focus on when they're playing it? Or what do you recommend for people who are running the game from a player's perspective? What would you like more of or less of? So I think going into it, I expected to have to be a little, not a little, a lot more serious, I guess would be the term, a lot more focused and serious. And, and you know, this is going to be pure horror all the way through. And I wouldn't be given the opportunity to, you know, be a little bit more flexible with my character, have some humor pop up here and there. That's not the case at all. I mean, we, our, our collection of characters in this campaign, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous trio right now. And it started out as a ridiculous trio, I mean. And um, we came at it from a very irreverent perspective, I think, um, which we tend to approach a lot of our <laughs> games with, Megan has found. It's, it can be hard. I mean, honestly, I believe it can be hard for people to avoid because I try to make serious characters when I'm playing and they always end up being silly. Roleplay, I think, and and is inherently silly in a way. You got you're getting of... together. You're getting together with your friends. You're playing a game. You're doing all this strange and bizarre stuff. The line between horror and comedy is actually pretty thin, even though on the surface they might seem very different to have like a comedy and to have a horror movie. I think like the part, the parts of your brain that they trigger, a lot of the ways that the genres function are actually pretty similar in sort of like in terms of like the rhythm and how they're supposed to affect you. Like, you know, it's like when you're watching a comedy and they're building up to a punchline and then that punchline hits and you're not expecting it and you laugh. It's the same way in horror. They're building up to a scary moment and then that scary moment hits and you scream. It's another reason that horror movies and comedies are both short. You know, dramas and action movies can be as long as you want, but a horror movie or a comedy that are more than like 90 minutes long lose their impact because they're supposed to be kind of just like hitting you over and over. This is very true. Yes. So I don't think that there's any reason that you can't be a funny character in Call of Cthulhu. And a lot of Lovecraft is is funny. I mean, he's he's thought of as a horror writer, but a lot of the stuff that he does is just so over the top that it's hard not to think of it as funny at times. And it, it also plays into that sense of, you know, if you're faced with this horrible situation what else can you do except laugh at it i think it's a very human response it's like a human defense mechanism when things get so horrible that your brain can't quite process it you laugh yeah yeah absolutely it's kind of built on a basis of disbelief in a way both comedy and horror um you know you, you get to, you get to that punchline you weren't expecting it um you get mm -hmm. to that a terrifying uh leaking face coming down the wall you certainly weren't <laughs> expecting that so it definitely touches on this the same parts of the psyche i think mm -hmm. it's all they're both about the unexpected i think that's that's kind of where horror and comedy overlap so i don't think any players should not feel guilty if they want to make silly characters for call of cthulhu and keepers should not feel like they're doing a bad job if their players get silly with it it's very hard to keep players in that kind of scary frame of mind when you're you know, sitting around a table rolling dice with all your friends. Oh yeah, um, yeah. When when I started out with um, uh, my character, uh, I I was playing her. You know, real, real over the top, just real over the top. And she's just over the top in general. That's just who she is. Um, but it's it's easy to you'll find at the beginning of any any new campaign, people tend to if they're into role play, they'll you know embody that character to a a ten that'll be over the top because they're trying to figure them out. But in Call of Cthulhu, the descent into 
things are off and not as they should be. Um, that that creeping feeling of dread, um, that descent kind of brings you down a little bit from that really high over the top point and lets you ease more into your character's fears and insecurities. Um, and I noticed that happening with my character kind of naturally as the uh, story went on, which is a really cool feeling. I had two very different experiences running this campaign because or running this scenario because the first group that I ran it for had a very clear sense of what they thought was going on. They thought either this house is haunted or else there's vampires. They got that into their heads right away. So before they even went to the house, the first things that they wanted to do is they wanted to get an EMF reader so they could be like ghost hunters walking around with their EMF reader, making a noise whenever you know there was a ghost around. And they also wanted to get wooden stakes in case there was vampires that they had to stake. The adventure does not suggest that it's ghosts or vampires. I did not hint that it's ghosts or vampires. But they went in with that expectation. And of course, their expectations were completely turned on their heads. They were not expecting a serpent man wizard living in the basement. But the group you were in, you approached it very, very much like real human beings in a real human setting who are not concerned at all that there might be monsters under this house. And I thought that was interesting how these two different groups just started a completely opposite frame of mind. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that. It sounds like those characters and the other other group are very suspicious. Mm-hmm. Very superstitious. But you all were so easy. You just you just went right for it. And I was I was glad. That's what a as a, a keeper or a game master, that's what I like when my my players just go for it. Sometimes in D D, if if you're doing a like a pre-made campaign, it can sometimes feel, depending on your dungeon master, like you're on rails. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels like that's almost, you know, you're, obviously there's a story here with this this particular Call of Cthulhu campaign, clearly. But it, it doesn't feel like we're as constrained, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, I think we spent the most of the first part of our session, at least the first half of it, in a lawyer's office just <laughs> talking. Well, Call of Cthulhu encourages that to a greater extent than Dungeons and Dragons does to set set a mood, create kind of an atmosphere. And I think that it's important for a horror campaign, especially especially a Call of Cthulhu game where it's supposed to be set in the real world and these characters sort of start out as uninitiated into the the horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. That you're just, you know, an actress and a lawyer and a, an astrophysicist <laughs> just sitting around a lawyer's office chit-chatting and it's also it, it works to help to build to build the strangeness of what you're going to encounter. And that's sort of something that horror does well, and I think Call of Cthulhu in particular does well. You start out as just normal people in the normal world with sort of the beliefs that normal people have about the existence of monsters and aliens and ghosts and whatever. And then suddenly you turn a corner and you are in this just bizarre world that you could not possibly have imagined. Yeah, and what it what it also does is it helps, uh, you know, being given that narrative freedom and, and that freedom to role play like that and, and get to know each other and have all that time to do that um, helps us really quickly start to forge bonds. And then those bonds can be used against us. Yeah, exactly. So I'd like to know what you enjoyed about this particular scenario that we did or or what you would like to change about it and the sort of review that I did prior to this recording one of the things that I that I liked about this adventure is that I feel like it's a good starter uh, scenario for 
new players to kind of learn what they're supposed to do. Like there's a good balance of role-playing and investigating, but then there's also this kind of dungeon crawl in the second half. But I feel like the downside is that I don't feel like it touches that cosmic horror that you were talking about. I feel like when people play Call of Cthulhu or they go into Lovecraft, that's kind of what they're expecting. I mean, not all of Lovecraft is that cosmic horror, but it's what he's known for. And I think that's what people are expecting when they play a Call of Cthulhu. So I think that it is something for keepers to be aware of that if your players are expecting them, are expecting to find Cthulhu living in the in the caves under this house in Providence, Rhode Island, that they might be disappointed that it's just a couple of ape people and a wizard guy, a, liz- a lizard wizard. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it might just be me, but I know that I am into a slow burn when it comes to horror. Um, and if all of that, you know, all of that had been shoved at us right in the at the very start, it would have really, I think, tampered the experience rather than enhanced it in any way. It's just like, you know, in a, in a horror movie when they reveal, you know, in a, in a creature flick, when they reveal the creature way too soon and you see like mm-hmm. the full glory of it like when within the first 10 minutes it kind of takes away from it in a way but were you expecting there to be something a bit more down there in those caves like once you started once your characters started getting down into the caves were you did you have any kind of expectation about what was going to be down there just based on your knowledge of call of cthulhu did you expect there was going to be weird alien monsters with tentacles and then when you found out it was just eight people you're like me that's not no no i didn't go in with any expectation of of seeing anything with tentacles um (laughs) um i that's a relief for me yeah yeah um i i knew that you know obviously that's uh you know when you think of at least you know when i think of uh cthulhu you know you see the image of the giant creature in the in the ocean with the five thousand tentacles and squid face but uh that's the big 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 bad (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't want to meet Cthulhu. <laughs> I have no interest in meeting Cthulhu. And I think Cthulhu should stay where Cthulhu is and just, you know, affect us through the mind. So, no, I <laughs> um, I, I wasn't expecting to meet uh, Cthulhu um, or anything related to Cthulhu in particular. And in fact, I was overjoyed that it was just eight people. <laughs> what was the kind of most effective moment for you in this scenario? Oh my god, I I know immediately. So there's the part where my character was crawling through that very small space. Mm-hmm. Um and she had to turn around um and come back and uh those like strange hands reached out and grabbed her <laughs> ankles and I like I like shivered and I kind of like felt like there were little hands on my ankles too. <laughs> yeah, that that part I mentioned it in the review. That part where you're kind of crawling around in the caves isn't isn't in the scenario as it's written. That was kind of my personal flourish. But the scenario does call for things like that, where you're wandering around the caves and it's so dark and suddenly you feel like a hand out, reach out and brush against you and you turn and there's just this this crevice that you can't fit through. So you don't know what it was. Or you see like a glimpse of a of the of the ape person as they're going down a hole and you just see like a little glimpse of the top of their head. And that's that's kind of neat because uh, I like that in this scenario how they they build the tension where you're walking through these caves to start that are basically empty, but you're just catching little little glimpses that sort of building up the fear that you're not alone here. And that's very much part of the scenario. I just kind of expanded it a little bit. But yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you enjoyed that. That was that was fun. It was fun to do that to you. Yeah, it was really effective. <laughs> do you have any advice for somebody who might potentially be running this scenario for their own group 
anything that you'd really like them to avoid or to emphasize? Yeah, I think make sure you give your players room to breathe. Like let them let them dip their toes in a little bit before diving headfirst into the main narrative of the story. I mean, you want these people to care about each other, don't you? In a way, maybe. So that mm-hmm. when one of them dies, it's very sad and horrific and terrible. Um, you want to, you know, if, if they want to role play, let them role play. But if they don't, you know, just as a, uh, actually, let me backtrack that. They, they need to want to role play. <laughs> <laughs> not everybody does want to role play. And that's not not a bad thing if that's sort of what the whole group is into if they just want to like go through the caves and fight things there's actually there's a i don't know if you know this but there's a supplement called pulp cthulhu which is a expansion of the original call of cthulhu which makes your characters more powerful basically and the idea is that if you're the kind of group that just wants to go just wants to run into the tunnel and just start blasting away at monsters you can oh yeah i have heard of that i didn't know mm-hmm. that's what it was though that's that's cool yeah it's kind of like a rule a rules expansion that allows and allows you to have some like superpowers and allows you to have some special technology that makes you more powerful I'd like to play it someday, but I just wanted to, I really like the, like you said, the slow burn and the slow buildup. And I wanted to, I wanted to really experiment with that to develop my own skills as a, as a game master. Yeah. Yeah. I think just the, the term slow burn, um, it, it, some people, when they hear it, they can, they think to themselves, oh, that sounds boring. You know, that's not what I mean at all. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're having a great time the entire time, but it's, it's just that little voice in the back of your head. And when you start to think, uh, question your own sanity or uh, what, what is real and what isn't, or what your character believes is, is real and what isn't, it really, really, it's really effective. I don't know. All right. Well, Rachel, I think that we have covered everything that I wanted to cover. So thank you very much for hanging out with talking to me about this particular scenario. I'm looking forward to running the next one with you. What's, what's today? Today's Friday. So... We should be meeting up again on Sunday to to start with the next one. So I'm looking forward to that. I hope you're looking forward to that. And, oh my God, yes. And where can people find you if they're interested in what you're doing on social media? Um, you can find me at twitter.com uh, forward slash Rachel underscore Delphia. And I'll include a link to that in the show notes. Um, Rachel is a wonderful person and very creative and a great player of role-playing games. So I highly suggest that you follow her. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me and everybody out there listening. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to me and we'll see you next time. It was super fun. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. Bye.